Will you open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1? If you're joining us for the first time, it's, uh, it's an easy book to find. It's the second book in the Bible after Genesis. It's also, the passage we're looking at is also printed in the bulletin today. We'll begin just by reading and then pray and look at what these things mean. The text is absolutely beautiful. One of the most beautiful and memorable stories you've probably ever read. One commentator noted that you can't forget the story of Exodus. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 people. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And If war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and go and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast 
into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This, of course, introduces the man Moses or the baby Moses who will be born and is at the heart of the story of Exodus, but not more at the heart than God himself with his people. The grass withers and the flower falls, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. And Jonathan, uh, if you're around, if if you have trouble hearing me, I'm going to try to dial down a little bit. If you have trouble, will you adjust the sound for me? Thanks. Father, as we prayed earlier, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. The book of Exodus begins with the word and, not in our translations, but if you look at the Hebrew text, it begins with the Hebrew letter uh, that is evolved letter that is and. The very first word of it is and the names or and names. It's all one word in the Hebrew. If you look at a Hebrew Bible, the book of Exodus is called the names. Names followed by numbers. It's the first word that's in the book of Numbers. It's how that Numbers title comes to us and also telling. It's telling of why Exodus is so important. The and and the names remind us that Exodus is a continuation of the previous story and that is of Genesis. Even though we're now 400 years in the future or roughly 400 years, there are reasons to believe that that number is probably a rounded number, somewhat of a symbolic number, but multiple generations in the future to the point where the Israelites had moved to Egypt with roughly 70, perhaps 70 men, as many as 140 total. But now they number over a million. And despite the conditions that they've been living in, which are surely difficult and many Babies that were born would have died in these difficult conditions. The Lord had blessed the Israelites even in their condition, their difficult conditions, so that they continued to multiply and multiply and multiply, even far exceeding the multiplication of the Egyptians. And into this, into this people, a group of people, a nation that has been established, God comes and he speaks to the people again, perhaps for the first time audibly in this whole time since the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and his brothers. For we've seen in Genesis, that story of Genesis that God was actively speaking to each of those patriarchs, directing their steps, reminding them of the covenant that he was making with them, the promises that he was giving to them. And it seemed impossible that God was going to build a nation out of the descendants of Abraham when Abraham didn't even have a son or a daughter, no children. It seemed impossible that with the scandals of Jacob and his children, that a nation would even rise up out of it. That with famine in the land, that there would even be provision for the people to survive. And 
Yet here we are with the book of Exodus beginning by reminding us that this is a continuation of that story of Genesis and reminding the people, not just of Israel of the time, not just those living in slavery, but reminding the people of God from here, from then and forevermore of God's presence in a time of need, his ever-present help in a time of need. The book of Exodus, the story of Exodus, is a continual reminder to the people of God that no matter how hard life gets, no matter what the circumstances of life, God sees us, he hears us, he knows our needs, and he responds to, he provides for our needs. If you flip over to Exodus chapter 3, verses 7, starting with verse 7, you'll hear this promise, this understanding explicitly expressed to the people. He says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. As we look at the book of Exodus, it's important to remember that we are not the Israelites. We are not faced with tasks like the Israelites are, making bricks in massive buildings, even Later, we'll find out that that task is made harder as they take away the building, the raw materials, and they have to go find them on their own, yet still are responsible for building as much as they had before. In no way does our experience equate to their experience, and yet God hears our calls and he responds to our problems. As we come to the book of Exodus one of the things I want us to think about is how we can apply this appropriate to us in our own lives. And I want to encourage you right now to go ahead and think about the things that you identify with most when you hear these words of deliverance. And what are the things that you want to, need to be freed from? Now that may be something that is external to you. some condition that you were either born into or find yourself in now that's a form of oppression to you. In the employment that you have, in the relationships that you have, it may take the form even for some in our culture experience forms of slavery and, and certainly forms of abuse. And if those things come to mind immediately, I want you to find your identity in 
the book of Exodus, knowing that the people of God have experienced this before and God hears your cries, knows your pain and promises a deliverance. That deliverance doesn't always come overnight. But he hears your cries. And let me further say, if you're in a place where you don't feel like you can tell that to anybody, know that the church, which is called by Paul in the letter to the Galatians that we read, the Israel of God, that the church is a place that should and must be a safe place where we can come and express those needs and find safety. One of the places that is the most encouraging places of redemption that I've heard of in San Diego is a place called Generate Hope that was set up specifically to serve women who are escaping the abuse and the tyranny of sexual uh, slavery, who have been prostitutes and served under those other people as slaves oppressed and abused, and now can find escape. If you are in a place like that, there are places that are safe houses. They aren't even connected to law enforcement that you can find hope and rescue. For many of us, though, the places that we feel like we need escape take a much less obvious and less dire form. Oftentimes they're in places of poverty, of unsatisfying or difficult employment. Excuse the, the, uh, the, the I think part of the problem is that I've got twisted here. Let me just fix this. Unsatisfying or difficult employment, economic depression around us that causes unemployment. Certainly family circumstances can play into this. Relationships that aren't necessarily abusive, but certainly aren't satisfying. If you find yourself in a place like that, I want to encourage you to find your hope in the story of Exodus as well. And cry out to God knowing that God hears your voice and hears your need and responds to those things. The Egyptians, of course, as we see and we'll see the going back and forth of Pharaoh deciding, oh yeah, I'll release you, and then changing his mind and having his heart hardened or hardening it himself, are eventually conquered. Their army is destroyed in the Red Sea. But that doesn't mean that those who don't serve others well need to be destroyed. Our bringing of issues to God can be accompanied with prayers for grace for those who are not serving us well, who are doing damage to us. Cry out to God and know that he hears your prayers. As a second category, I want to bring up a third category of things that we can identify with and apply as we read through the story of Exodus, and that, are, that is the things that are brought by our own sins. The places where we have failed to live up to the standards that God has set for us, the calling on our lives that God has placed for us, 
And through that, we have brought difficulties into our lives. And this is everybody, all of us. You see, on the one hand, we can all identify with the Israelites who are in bondage in Egypt. But on the other hand, we all need to be able to identify with the Egyptians. Who are the ones guilty of out of fear for their own well-being, their own provision, their own safety. Hedge their bets and suppress the Israelites for their own self-satisfaction, their own self-glory, the building projects. We need to come to the book of Exodus and realize that we're not always on the side of the oppressed and be willing to confess our sins to God. For it's only through our confession of our sin, our acknowledgement of our shortcomings and our difficulties, uh, our, our, our errors, that we can truly find the freedom that we're looking for in the story of Exodus. And ultimately, in the story of God bringing redemption, a freedom from slavery through Christ. Paul hints at this, he gets at this, as he's mixing some of the metaphors of how the law that God gives to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai after, de- after they're delivered becomes in itself a form of tyranny, as taskmaster to the people, reminding them of their shortcomings. And he points out how easily and how fast we as a people tend to run back to slavery because it's something familiar and something that is somewhat comfortable. And that slavery is a running back to the sins that give us a short sense of relief or maybe that seem functional for a short time, but that we know and have recognized as children of God is a freedom that is short-lived and brings an even greater slavery in the long run. If we come to the Exodus and only look around us and say, oh, the church is being persecuted, the, st- the culture around us is moving away from the ethics of God, which is certainly true, then we'll miss an opportunity, a key opportunity, to hear from the, the book of Exodus a call to us to find true redemption and rescue from our sin, the slavery that that sin brings to us. One of the things that's motivated me to, well, let me share a couple of things that have motivated me to study the book of Exodus. The first thing is that I try to go between Old Testament and New Testament back and forth in my teaching so that you can see that Jesus is the central figure of all of the scriptures and all of the Old Testament is preparing us to understand the work that he does and all of the New Testament is showing us how Christ has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is roughly three times as long as the New Testament though. 
So we tend to neglect certain portions of the Old Testament, which is why I've set up and encouraging all of us to, to do this reading plan, this Bible reading plan that divides the Old Testament into three portions that are roughly divided uh, by historical epoch. And the first portion of it that we're in right now looks at Genesis up to uh, Joshua and Judges and really is looking at this calling and establishing of a people, a family that God makes. And then after that, we're going to look at the kingdom that God establishes when, when he appoints uh, Saul as king and then David and Solomon. And that kingdom lasts for hundreds of years. And it's a significant time in the kingdom, uh, the life of God's people. And next year, we're going to look at that kingdom. And then after that, we're going to look at another time where the kingdom falls and God removes the king from his people and they suffer exile in Babylon and they're taken captive and then they return, but they return under uh, the, uh, the, uh, the oppression oftentimes of other foreign rulers. And that's a time of exile and, and with no king. And we tend to neglect especially that time in history. So I've divided these things up and it forced me. I, I said, why don't we focus our attention during each of these years in the sermons, in the children's teaching, in the life of the church around this, these epochs. So that forced me to consider, well, what should I teach from, from this? We've recently studied through Genesis a couple years ago. It's difficult to jump ahead to the book of Numbers or, or, or Leviticus um, or even Deuteronomy without really looking at the Exodus. Exodus seemed to emerge, but I got to tell you, I wasn't necessarily excited about teaching Exodus. I love teaching narrative, but Exodus is sometimes difficult to see the gospel in. But as I studied it more, God continued to put on my heart, no, you need to look at the book of Exodus. Another thing over the past year that pressed me into this has been the challenge raised by the the protests and the cultural questions that have been raised as we face the election year, especially from the black church, black Christians, who so many of, uh, of them, I, I'm friends with many of them, and the vast majority have chosen to support the Democratic Party for president, understandably so, in so many ways. For the rhetoric coming from especially President Trump has been so, I wouldn't say outright racist, but so conducive. It's just enabling language that is so troubling over and over again. But it's not just that. For generations, the black church has identified more with the Democratic Party than the Republican Party, even though the vast majority of white evangelicals vote consistently for the Republican Party. And in talking with some of my friends, I was challenged by this, this understanding that, that the black church finds so much identity in the book of Exodus because of their slavery or the, the, their ancestors' slavery experience, not just in America, but in other places around the world. And it became clear to me that the, 
the white church does not find quite as much identity. Now, that's not true entirely, because if you look back, and in, your st in my studies, I'm seeing this more and more. You look back on the time of the English persecution and the persecution of the church in Europe, the Puritans and many others came to North America seeking freedom from religious persecution and found great affinity with the book of Exodus, the people, the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And part of what I'm committing to as we go forward in this study is to look to uh, more black authors. One of the most troubling things that I found as I started to study this is that the number of commentaries, biblical commentaries that pastors use to prepare sermons that focus in on a particular text and, and, and we understand that particular text, the number of them written by black authors is incredibly, shockingly small. I have not been able to find a single commentary in the book of Exodus written by a black author, even though it's probably the book that they write on and speak about the most. But my commitment is to search those out and to use and, and reference those, not, not to identify myself as somebody who experiences that condition or even the, the influence of that, uh, that, that uh, slavery of my ancestors, but to better understand the people who are coming to the church and what they have experienced even today in a continuing culture that tends to express openly oftentimes but subtly and quietly other times a prejudice and even a bias that is uh, racially based. Another reason that we should be cautious not to identify with the oppressed too quickly as a church who is facing more and more restrictions on what we can teach and what we uh, do from the state around us, but to look at the book of Exodus and have a heart of compassion for those who are suffering around us more than what we are. With that being said, I want to briefly look at some of this story so that we understand it and are really teed up for the next. I'm not going to spend too much time on each of these points. I broke it down roughly into three sections. So the three paragraphs you have, 1 through 7, 8 through 14, and 15 through 22. The first point is this. I keep having to chase the shade a little bit here. But the first point is this. That Exodus is a continuation from the book of, jo of Genesis. The second point is that the people of Israel are facing a new reality, a new condition in their life in Egypt. And the third point is that that difficulty takes on a new form now with a genocidal leader. And what does this mean for us as Christians? The continuation, we said earlier that the book of Exodus begins with the word and and begins with the, the, the word names, and it names these children of Jacob. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, and Abraham was the one that God called and said, I am going to take you out of this place and out of your people and put you in a new place and make you a nation. Multiple nations come out of Abraham. And he says, I'm going to not only save you and your family, but through your family, salvation is going to come to all of my creation. And that promise 
points us to the person and work of Jesus Christ who is born as a child of Abraham. The children of Abraham is such a central thing. That's why I read our assurance of forgiveness earlier from Genesis 3 that we are now children of Abraham, it says. Sons and heirs of God's promise. And it does so with such brevity, but it points to the fact that the people are in, are in Egypt. These Israelites are in Egypt because of God's provision. You remember that Joseph had gone to Egypt because he had been sold into slavery by his 11 brothers who meant to kill him and then decided, no, we can get a little bit better deal out of this if we just sell him. And out through Joseph... Salvation comes to this family because when famine hits, the people of Israel, the family of Jacob, go down to Egypt. And the way that God provides is that Joseph has now become the prime minister of Egypt, miraculously. And so the very reason that they're in Egypt is because God delivered them from death And yet now they find themselves in Egypt facing death and in a condition of slavery there. The irony of the story keeps turning and twisting for the people maybe got too comfortable in that place. Maybe they they would have stayed forever if God didn't force them out. We really don't know. But what we do know is that God was faithful to his promise and multiplied their number greatly. You remember the promise given to Abraham that your descendants will be more numerous than the grains of the sand by the sea and more numerous than the stars above than you can count. And the land was filled with them. But, section two, there's a new reality, a new condition that the people are facing in this place. For years, they presumably enjoyed some that favor for Joseph was good, a good servant for Egypt as well as his family. Joseph saved the, the Egyptians from famine because of a dream that he had interpreted for Pharaoh and they stocked up what they needed. But now a new condition, a new king rose up over Egypt and he didn't remember who Joseph was. Remember, this is hundreds of years in the future now. And now he looks at this multitude of people and he doesn't see a savior for them that came through Joseph. He sees a hindrance and a risk. He says, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. And so he does what humans always do. When a risk arises around us, we try to tamp it down. We try to suppress it. But he wasn't just looking to get rid of the issue. If you read close, listen carefully earlier, it said, lest they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, is in verse 10. He's not just afraid of them rising up and fighting against the Egyptians. He's gotten used to their servant service in this place. He's going to miss their labor if they go. Again, a place where if you read about the founding of our nation, you hear the founders wrestling, knowing of the evil and the abusiveness of American slavery and yet not willing to give up the economic benefit. 
that many have co had come to depend on and find too much comfort in. The Egyptian king used the Israelites to build these store cities. We hear two named in verse 11, Pithom and Ramses. I love it when the Bible names actual places. Part of it's because I'm a bit of an archaeology nerd and I like to go back and study these places. But when we find that the places are real places, it gives a, a realness to the text, to the story that doesn't allow us to take this into fantasy land. To say, like some have done, that this is more of a fairy tale. For some of the story is told in fairy tale-like fashion. To hear of two midwives that serve all of a million people is phenomenal. It's impossible. And yet we don't have to believe that the story is a fairy tale because it doesn't list all of the people who were helping the midwives. Some have suggested that these two were particularly in charge of the midwives. They're senior midwives in charge of others. Some have suggested uh, other things that the text itself tells us that these women would give birth themselves. They really weren't depending on the midwives. But when we hear these, these cities named and we know through history that these cities existed and were built up in these particular times and places. We're reminded that somebody had to build them. The archaeological evidence of the Israelites in Egypt is relatively small. Some of you may be familiar that some have found uh, chariots buried in the Red Sea and, um, and some other uh, occasional findings, but there's not a ton And that's probably because in the ancient world, people tended to cover up their defeats, their blunders. They didn't write on their buildings in, Pithys and Ramses, in Pithom and Ramses built by the Israelites. In fact, when the Israelites left and were rescued, they probably went through extensive efforts to erase all record of them. And even to this day, the Egyptian archaeological societies tend to not let people dig in their places that are coming to try to find evidence of the Israelites in Egypt. That said, there have been various things uncovered in the nation of Israel that certainly point to an Egyptian presence. And the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus is filled with references that are Egyptian in nature. We tend to think of it being a Hebrew book and filled with Hebrew. But one thing we'll look at as we go through this, I'm not going to focus on it as much this time as I did last time years ago when I taught on this, is that the 10 plagues tie pretty closely to the gods of the Egyptian people. That the illustrations and the examples that are given tie in with Egyptian iconography and practices so closely. It's not surprising that God uses Moses to speak to the people of Israel in writing this book using language that they're familiar with, which is probably more Egyptian in nature than it is Hebrew in nature at this point. The people know the practices of Egypt. 
and the cities point us to the fact, the reality that this is rooted in history. It is truth. It is not a fairy tale. The last section of this intro, did you notice, by the way, or you will notice that this chapter is the one that really focuses in on the difficulty that the Israelites focus, sets the context, the stage of the conflict in the story. Moses does not belabor the Israelites' pain and suffering as much as you might expect him to. He still revisits it from time to time, but he really sets the stage. And he, he goes here in such a powerful way that we are shocked that anyone could suggest that a way of controlling a population's influence and growth is to slaughter the newborn male children of that entire race. Even in the genocides, the worst genocides of our time in recent history, people have not sunk to this level of depravity. Of course, the time of the Holocaust and the six million Jews who perished rises to an extensive, a comparable level. But even there, it was not systematic because what what did it mean that the male babies were killed? It meant first that they were going after the weakest of the weak. They weren't going after adult males who could fight back. They were going after the weakest of the weak. More than that, they were going after not just the people themselves. They were going after the race because the women who were born and now growing up would have no option other than to not marry, not have children, or to intermarry with the Egyptians. It was the annihilation of a whole people group or the attempted annihilation of a whole people group. The cries that are coming to God that are expressed in chapter 3 that we read earlier are cries comparable to the weeping and gnashing of teeth that happened when Herod killed the infants, the baby boys, because of the news of a king, a Messiah that had been born that was brought to him. There he was actually able to carry out the annihilation of many of the boys. But here it doesn't happen because the midwives recognize that they are servants first of God. They are responsible first to God and then to Pharaoh. And there's not evidence that a single baby died in this whole thing. Although the fact that Moses was put in the river probably indicates that there were babies who died at this. But Moses, of course, is put in the basket and safely put in a place where he would intend, intentionally be found by the household of Pharaoh himself and is miraculously rescued. The people's cries continue to call out to God, not just based on the slaughter of the uh, potential slaughter of the babies, but also for their hard service. But that doesn't mean that the people are ready to be freed from their slavery. That doesn't mean that they're wanting really to escape because they're comfortable in many ways in the familiar. Part of the reason I want to preach on the book of Exodus is because I believe we spend too little time oftentimes on the transformative power of the gospel in our lives, the power to change our lives. That's why I introduced it with two sermons from Galatians. The first one titled Grace 
I forgot the first part of it. Grace, what is it? the second part is grace transforms. Grace delivers, grace transforms. Anybody remember it? Wasn't too memorable, evidently. It's going to come to me in a second. My focus right now, though, is on the fact that grace transforms. It changes us. And I want us to focus in on this desire for us to leave the abuses, the pain, the power of Pharaoh over our lives, even to suggest slaughtering our children by the transformation that happens in our lives. Now, what's the connection for that? I'd like to suggest that those of us who have children, the remaining sin in our lives continues to have power over them. And if we've become comfortable and remain comfortable in allowing the slavery of the sin in our lives to not be removed, to not have a desire to remove it, to not go through the effort of removing it, and to not experience the transforming power of God's grace to remove our sin, then it affects not only us, it affects the next generation behind us. And if there's one thing that the story of the Pentateuch is careful to communicate, it's that God's transforming power is multi-generational. And even when one generation flees from God, doesn't respond to God, God comes in and he calls the next generation. He will accomplish his purposes whether, whether or not we do something or not. But I'll tell you that what we do especially for the next generation, is used mightily by God to bring salvation not only to our children, but to our children's friends and colleagues and other people who God calls to himself. God instructs us to entrust to the next generation the things that have been given to us. Our lives and the sin that exists in our lives and the slavery that we experience has an impact on the next generation. They may not die at the hand of Pharaoh, but they could face an even greater death, and that is a spiritual death, separation from God, not knowing God. If we don't know the story of God and are not confident that God transforms our lives that God does change us. Grace transforms the Christian's life. Not by the power, not by our commitment, not by redoubling, but by an understanding that through Moses, that through Moses and Aaron, his brother, who serves as a priest of God, and through the people of Israel, even Judah, Judah, the bro- one of the brothers of Joseph, who was the worst of the brothers. Judah becomes the ancestor of Jesus himself. God brings salvation to us. by a power not our own, but by the power of Jesus Christ working in us. It's Jesus who has freed us from our slavery. 
It's Jesus who has called us not, no longer slaves, but free. No longer children, but adults, heirs with Christ. No longer slaves, but children of God. We can be both children and adults at the same time. We can be, we can be God's children delivered from sin so powerfully. It is still killing me that I can't remember the title of that sermon just a bit ago. Anybody remember it? Grace leads and grace transforms. Thank you. Somebody knows the sermon. Grace leads and grace transforms. It's grace that leads us to Christ and to repentance. And it's grace, the power of grace that transforms us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have called us out of the power of sin and tyranny. Father, you have rescued us from the power of sin and death over our lives. As we look to the book of Genesis and we look to the hope and salvation of Jesus having freed us from this slavery, will you help us to identify with the Israelites and the Egyptians, desiring not to be enslaved or enslavers any longer. And let us be ambassadors of your peace and of your salvation, of your freedom to the world around us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.